Today's episode is episode 207, and today's episode is called The Myth of Sisyphus. So today's episode is on The Myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus. I'm just going to talk around some points that I have taken from the book, some things I found interesting to think about, some things that he articulated that made sense of some things that I were trying to figure out, and... Yeah, I'll just dive into it. I'm just going to quote some things from the book and just talk around it. So, there's a great quote here. A profound thought is in a constant state of becoming. It adopts the experience of a life and assumes its slope. So it's funny that I read this quote, this part of the book, after I had a discussion with someone around asking the bigger questions of life. So I was saying that I don't think people in general are asking deeper questions because they don't know how to ask a deeper question without engaging your analytical mind with that. In my experience, it's asking guiding questions of your life. They help you to orient yourself in life and it will determine what you pay attention to and what you're prioritizing and valuing in your life experience. So when I read this quote then in the book from Albert Camus, that articulated what I was trying to get at in a very succinct way because I was finding it difficult to to explain it because it's a difficult thing to explain. There's a I guess you're trying to explain how to ask an open-ended question to yourself. That's what you're trying to explain. So I was really impressed with how Albert Camus, he described that here, about asking bigger questions, deeper questions of life. Another thing that he went on to describe was the artist and... Again, it was something that I think about is what's the difference between a philosopher and an artist? And I've always felt that it was something in the self-expression piece and the applying your insights to reality, actually seeing the implications of your philosophy play out in reality. So philosophy isn't approached as just simply thought experiments to understand life on a just a purely theoretical level, metaphysical level, but it's it's engaging in philosophy as a way to experiment with how you engage with your life. So he he had a quotation here. He was talking about Dostoevsky. So he said Dostoevsky illustrates the consequences that such intellectual pastimes may have in a man's life, and in this regard, he is an artist. So he was talking about that distinction between a philosopher and an artist, and he was saying how in certain writers' books, like Dostoevsky's books, he is looking at the consequences of intellectual pastimes was the, just engaging in these more philosophical, this more philosophical thought, this more intellectual pursuit of understanding life so he was dealing with the consequences 
through his characters, he was he was laying out the implications of philosophy. So another point that Camus talked about in this book centers around what is thinking. So thinking is not unifying or making the appearance familiar under the guise of a great principle. Thinking is learning all over again how to see, directing one's consciousness, making of every image a privileged place. So that's a an interesting way of putting it. So when I thought about that in relation to my own life, like what, why do I engage in my intellectual pursuits? Like what do I get from it? What, what is it? Because it, it isn't about, it hasn't been about stuffing my head with knowledge. I couldn't think of anything more laborious and boring to do. It, it's been more about unraveling, unlearning, the things that I have believed to be true and getting a clearer picture on my reality. That's that's what the that's what thinking is to me. So that his his uh the quotation from the book here makes sense to me. I think when you approach thinking as something that you use to explain everything so here like thinking is not unifying or making the appearance familiar under the guise of a great principle that for me means that that would be somebody looking at thinking as a way to create a tangible principle that unifies and explains everything And that is in contrast to thinking is learning all over again how to see. So it's the, it's the latter part where I also put weight on thinking as something that is pleasurable and gives you a clearer picture on reality. I, the former part, thinking as unifying and making something familiar under a great principle, I think that has its use in the world but it isn't I suppose it isn't where the pleasure is derived from an intellectual I think I think an intellectual values thinking because you're, you're taught all over again how to see it connects you it reconnects you with that sense of yourself that you may have had parts of that as a child growing up it was just it was innate within you. It was internal within you. It was just this kind of feeling, the sensation, f- sensation, feeling that starts to get covered up through layers of conditioning as you get socialized. So the next part that I want to pick up on this book, he talked about preaching. So he said it's futile to be amazed by the apparent paradox that leads thought to its own negation by the opposite path of humiliated reason and triumphant reason, from the abstract God of Husserl to the dazzling god of Kierkegaard, the distance is not so great. Reason and the irrational lead to the same preaching. So just that final part, reason and the irrational lead to the same preaching. I've seen that in my reality too. So it's like the church of reason and the church. 
so you'll see the you'll see this this way of operating in the world from people who who will lead you to believe that they are driven purely by reason and people who will lead you to believe that they're that they're driven by something higher there's a higher purpose to their life there's like a higher power guiding them i would be more inclined to go in the middle ground on this i think when you're on up either side of the spectrum here it leads to preaching so if you are someone who is into alternative ways of being and only alternative ways of being then it gives you a tendency to preach that that way of life is the best way of life it's the antithesis of these people who are led purely by reason and are living in their heads whereas if you're on the other end of the spectrum with reason where you're completely against anything that isn't provable by principles and is mainly based on feeling and intuition then again that leads to a preaching way of operating where you're preaching against a certain way of life certain way of being in favor of reason without considering what feeling is guiding your need to have reason everywhere in your world because that can be connected to the desire for living in a known world even if aspects of that are illusory so that's the preaching you talked about there which i think was well explained it, again it's something that i've noticed and something i wanted to describe in some way and that for reading this book i felt he did a good description of that then on another part of this book he goes on to talk about deeper meanings so he said like great works deep feelings always mean more than they are conscious of saying so that there is part of the joy of doing deep work so there's layers of meaning to what you're doing that might not necessarily you might not necessarily know they're coming from you so it can be the case where you do something today and in a few months time a few years time you read this you read it back and you see something in that that you hadn't seen before so that's the joy of doing deep work is that it feels like there's a part of you that that's also doing it that you're unaware of and you're learning as you're going along yourself so it gives you the buy-in to want to do it even if there is no outside acknowledgement for what you're doing that's the internal motivation that gets you to do it the other thing that I like about what I do is that I work with Davy so there's an an extra layer of that happening where in his artwork there's layers of meaning in his artwork that I'm not aware of and there's possibly layers of meaning in his artwork that he's not aware of so it's duplicating the meaning I feel I feel there So again, that, that all gives a buy-in to, to 
create deep work for the sake of creating deep work. And the next part, I'm going to talk about consciousness, and it can, connects to the deep work also. So the problem with us in the Western world today is that we've got environments set up that are not conducive to deep work. They're set up in a way that's the antithesis of deep work. So social media, for example. One of the main goals of social media is to distract us, to gain our attention at all costs. And the problem is, on an individual level, when you've got an environment in place that is looking to get your attention at any cost, then when it does get your attention, it's getting a load of people's attention. So it's like a, a mass, it's a plan to to gain the attention of a mass of people. Then you just become like a cog in the machine there, and your attention is no longer that valuable. It's siphoning off your attention, and that attention becomes valuable in their context when you've got thousands of people attention that's when it starts to become valuable when you think about it on an individual level though it's devaluing your attention when your attention is being siphoned off to things like that and it's a tricky process because part of that is down to when you're distracted all the time it becomes a habit and it becomes harder and harder to focus Another part of it is addiction. Like when you've got feelings within you that you're uncomfortable feeling, you'll do anything that will get you to avoid feeling those feelings, distract you from them. So it plays into our addictions and our lack of discipline to focus. So that's the tricky part to this here. Like the way I think about it, deep work here is connection, gives you connection and a sense of meaning whereas the distractions is like a it plays into addiction and just this sense of numbness and meaninglessness to things and it's quite paradoxical because in the stuff I'm reading and talking about in this podcast I think even one of the premises of this book is that when you realize that life is meaningless, there's a certain freedom in that. I think when you create a meaning that's your own story and you're really identified with that, there's a lack of freedom in that. So it's quite paradoxical. And some of the ideas I'm exploring is just uh, how the meaninglessness of life helps to free you from this kind of illusion that there is a meaning to life. So I'll just go on to the next point with consciousness, which which tied into that there. So he said the word consciousness does not imply any idea of finality. It is taken in its sense of direction. Its only face value is topographical. So this also connects to the world of personal development and goal setting and being attached and identified to your goals. Over the years, I've met coaches who are set up on helping people achieve their goals. And that's all well and good, but some of the coaches I've met over the years, it it felt like 
they're setting up their clients to be identified with their goals so that it felt like all or nothing and it completely overlooked our nature as conscious beings or the nature of consciousness that there is there is no final destination for me as a conscious being it's like it's an unfolding day after day and it's as a human being then it's finding the balance between living in the world practically but have, still having an awareness of your nature of consciousness instead of being lost in illusion that there's some sort of destination to your life there's some sort of milestones you'll hit that will make you happier than you could be right now so it's looking more at the transitory nature of feelings when you're not bottling them up and you're willing to feel for the sake of feeling and it's looking at the nature of life it's like a series of moments series of days connected there's nothing more to it than that until you start thinking about it and making a life of it so it's finding the middle ground there between being a human being in the world and also realizing you're still just this consciousness that's impossible to define so I like that definition of consciousness. It got me to think about that. And I think at some part of the book, he talked about... So there's another quote here. Consciousness does not form the object of its understanding. It merely focuses. It is the art of attention. To borrow a Bergsonian image, it resembles the projector that suddenly focuses on an image. The difference is that there is no scenario, but a successive and incoherent illustration. In that magic lantern, all pictures are privileged. Consciousness suspends and experience the objects of his attention. So again, this plays back to the power is in the attention of consciousness. And as conscious beings, we get to choose where we're focusing our attention. I think we get to choose that more often, the more we're willing to feel what's going on for us, break free of some of our addictive thinking, which will help us to realize that the power is in our nature and that our attention is valuable and our life is going to be made up of the things we choose, the things, the people we choose to focus on over time. That's a way of looking at that there. Rather than looking at the outside world and what everybody else is doing and guessing what will make us happy based off of that. It's doing the opposite way around and just noticing your nature as a projector rather than what's being projected and going with that, seeing where that leads you rather than looking at what's projected on the screen and trying to determine your life based off of that. So then the last thing I want to talk about is hope. So he said a line here, being deprived of hope is not despairing. And I liked how he mentioned that because over the years I've felt my sense of hope change. So it's changed from, I used to believe in stories about the future being better than it is right now. Until I started to realize that that's 
just bringing me out of reality. It's making me believe in a future that isn't real and living in the hope that I will be in that future one day. So I've been realizing that I don't want to live like that. It doesn't feel great when I'm postponing my enjoyment of life. I'd much rather live in the present and feel whatever's coming up for me right now and appreciate the present because that's all I have. It doesn't mean that I can't live practically as a human being and still plan for the future, but I can plan in the sense that there's a space between my plans and who I am right now. So I can more easily recognize the plans are plans, they're not a reality that's real right now. The only reality that's real is the reality I'm living in right now and that will change. That will only change moment to moment over time, a series of of moments. It's hard, it's hard like intellectually intellectually you can't talk to yourself like this. That's why it's not a story, it's, it's recognizing reality and it ties back to um, Camus' point on thinking. Thinking is learning to see again. It's not learning to invent better stories about your reality. It's learning to see and to feel. So when I say see there, it's kind of feel, sense. So when you sense things, I think oftentimes it's a synonym for seeing things. So that's the main things I wanted to cover today. Albert Camus was a French philosopher and writer. A journalist, I think, as well. I think he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1957 at the age of 44. He's originally from Algeria. He died in France in 1960. He's got a number of books. I'd recommend giving them a read. And the last thing I want to talk about, well, not talk about, I'm just going to leave you with a paragraph from the story of the myth of Sisyphus. Camus' interpretation of the story towards the end of the book and I think at the very end he talks about Kafka's work he must have been a fan of Franz Kafka so I'm just going to leave you with this last paragraph so I leave Sisyphus at the foot of the mountain one always finds one's burden again but Sisyphus teaches the higher fidelity that negates the gods and raises rocks he too concludes that all is well this universe henceforth without a master seems to him neither sterile or futile each atom of that stone, each mineral flake of that night-filled mountain, in itself forms a world. The struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy.